up this is gareth manning and you are listening to the world teacher podcast part of my intent with this podcast has been to provide myself and others with an opportunity to explore some of the really interesting transformations happening all around us all around the world that said i certainly have my biases and this podcast will always reflect them some biases are explicit values like caring about human and ecological flourishing truth justice well-being what i call progress and so on Some biases, on the other hand, are implicit, such that I tend to only notice them when others point them out. For instance, listeners have pointed out a significant Western bias in my topic and guest choices. I concede that to be the case, and I truly do appreciate the feedback working on it. But with respect to certain issues, not only do I have a set of biases, I have a very clear and strong agenda for personal and societal transformation. I'm not an educator by accident, you see. I haven't spent 15 years, more really, making personal and financial sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for nothing. Nope. Folks, you're listening to a man on a mission. I've got a mission and I've got a vision. A truly beautiful vision, some would say. And if you're curious, I invite you to continue to listen as I build something of a thesis towards it through the World Teacher Podcast. This episode pertains to a core part of that vision, for it goes right to the heart of what it means to be a full human. We are emotional creatures, we are social creatures, we are super complex, complicated, contradictory, and above all, confused creatures, us, the human beings. Before all else, before we can build the world we want, we need to first understand what we are as humans, if we are to authentically create adaptive structures to meet our human needs. None of our major structures and systems, whether political, economic, cultural, or whatever, none of them, not a single one of them, was created with human needs in mind. Not one. Not the needs of all humans. And this is especially true of mainstream schools, which were explicitly designed to limit, shape, constrain, and control the energies of young people. That is, to limit their capacity to threaten the status quo of a deeply inequitable, human-labor-dependent, industrializing economy. I could do 20 episodes on the history of schooling if need be, but I'm slightly bored of that topic. I'm also at a phase in my life where I'm much more interested in creating solutions than in fighting and covering or understanding problems. So this episode is about solutions. The topic is social and emotional learning in schools. It's one of the things I believe which, if we were to get it really right, would produce truly beautiful and powerfully transformative knock-on effects and would really force us to reconsider and reshape nearly everything that is done in schools. My guest today hails from India. Her name is Nandini Chatterjee Singh. Nandini is a cognitive neuroscientist who works for the UNESCO MGIEP, a really terrific organization I'm very lucky to have discovered only very recently. UNESCO has a lot of arms, including the MGIEP, the Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development. So Nandini Chatterjee Singh of the UNESCO MGIEP is here to talk about her leadership role in developing what I argue is probably the most parsimonious, thoughtful, practically implementable, and therefore the best articulation of the need for social and emotional learning I have yet seen. The report is called Rethinking Learning, a review of social and emotional learning for education systems. It's not the kind of reading the general public usually 
buys into or seeks out, sadly. But if you're listening to this, you're not exactly the average member of the general public, are you? So please do check it out. Due to time constraints, we were only able to scratch the surface of its contents in this conversation, but it really does merit much more analysis. Implementing its findings will make the world a better place. I promise. This is me and Nandini from UNESCO MGIEP on the Neuroscience of Social and Emotional Learning. So Nandini, thank you so, 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 so much for coming on. The reason I found you and asked you to come on was through this absolutely phenomenal report that I found when researching social and emotional learning called Rethinking Learning, a review of social and emotional learning for education systems. And in it, you guys at MGIEP posit an absolutely fascinating, I would argue improved uh, vision for social emotional learning in education. What would you say is the best scientific case for centering social and emotional learning in education? So um, I think it all starts with the brain. And the purpose of education is to train the brain, if I may say so. And uh, in order for education to, to be able to do that, uh, a very important consideration is to look at how the brain is structured. Okay. Which, uh, so this is probably a, a long answer to a, a short question, but I think it will establish context right. And I couldn't make my case, case better if I, unless I showed you a quick slide about what's so special about this um, little structure, this black box between our two ears, which uh, seems to be controlling all of us all the time. But now that we know so much about it, what about it can actually inform us so that we not only educate better, but we even live better as human beings. Okay. And, and that's why I think uh, social emotional learning is going to be so fundamental. So just give me a second whilst I show you one slide. Okay. And, and hopefully that will establish context. So uh, here's a picture of uh, the human brain and I'm showing you a section out of it. Mm -hmm. And what you see in red is uh, also called the limbic cortex or the limbic brain but is also what many of us might refer to as the emotional brain. Mm -hmm. okay. And up there in blue and along those areas is the prefrontal cortex. It's this part of your brain, okay? Where um, a lot of executive function, which is decision-making, um, uh, language, uh, uh, a lot of higher order thinking happens. And so over the past years, education has focused a lot on building a lot of information which goes on to the prefrontal cortex. Mm. But the emotional brain is something that we've inherited. It's part of evolution. Okay? And as you can see from this image, it's anatomically connected to the prefrontal cortex. Okay? Yet at no point in time do we spend any time nurturing or training the emotional brain. We just expect it to happen magically. Mm -hmm. And sitting along with this is something that we now understand also as the social brain. Okay. Now, given the fact that the emotional brain is so strongly and anatomically connected to the thinking brain, and all of this is manifested through our social interactions, what we now have evidence for is the fact that 
unless we are able to teach children how all the decision making that they do involves a rational component and a social emotional component you do not end up making good decisions nor does any learning happen okay to put it very simply when children are anxious before an exam if we are able to tell them that buddy if you are anxious the brain is going to be spending all its energy just dealing with the anxiety and all the learning that you have is not available for the brain to process and therefore let's find a way to get rid of the anxiety so when you are writing the exam the brain can go back and retrieve all the information that you have learned you have understood to be made available for use then mm-hmm. and that's the simple reason that unless children feel socially connected and emotionally secure learning does not happen in the brain so our first job and our first need in the classroom is to feel make sure children feel socially connected and emotionally secure only then will they learn anything and that's why social emotional learning needs to be at the center of education what would you say would be the costs of continuing to do things the way we've been doing things in the schooling both to individual kids and to our societies i think we are already seeing some of the effects of that if you look at the numbers uh, that uh, a number of reports and a simple example of that is the is the who report which uh, came out in 2017 okay which says that more than 25% of teenagers suffer from stress anxiety depression and are at risk for many mental health issues mm-hmm. so clearly the the fact the, the that we are not addressing these is beginning to take its toll on children okay uh, if there's anything that we need to be worried about today it's really social and mental health in society today and i think uh, if if anything else the covid crisis has just brought this up to the fore being isolated physically distanced and i, I and i want to emphasize this we are only physically distanced if we are able to stay socially connected and that's one place where technology can be a very big help then a lot of this fear of isolation can actually um, sort of go away and begin to allow us to realize that this is a passing phase i'm still connected to people so if we are able to find ways that students and adults and children can connect in some way socially connect it's it's that important to the brain to feel socially connected because only then will the positive emotion kick in that my social connect is making me feel good there are people who care for me uh, i'm still able to interact and therefore i can continue with learning or whatever else i am doing just because i can't physically see you or or connect with you or touch you doesn't mean i'm socially distanced from you That's really fascinating. So uh, you're you're saying like it's it's sufficient for us for say young people or anyone to have like a psychological degree of connection such that like they're they're speaking interacting say online and that could be enough because it it feels close enough to the real life thing and that touch itself isn't necessary. Is that what you're saying? Well, I can we can certainly 
manage without it, without touching out, reaching out to our friends immediately right now. But if we are completely out of touch, so example, if you're living all by yourself, I can imagine that becoming an issue. Mm. But this is where uh, the family begins to step in, you know. And so um, if what your, your friends and your classmates were doing for you, if now parents can take on the roles of becoming not just parents, but friends too for children, I think we will begin to build very interesting new family networks, which can function as very stable social networks at home, you know. So I've actually used this time to, to rediscover my children. Oh, that's awesome. And, and uh, they're, they're both, you know, sort of between the ages of 16 and 20. And uh, they're becoming individuals in their own right. And just spending so much time with them in the same space is helping me discover them in so many new ways. And now we are becoming friends as we are doing that. And uh, uh, I did a, we conducted a short dialogue a couple of months ago with uh, kids from seven countries. And it was amazing how much uh, kids who were able to connect with back at home and with families were coping so much better with the lockdown vis-a-vis those who just chose to stay isolated. That's been my observation entirely. I think it really depends. I, I, it's great to have these online connections, but I think it's also important to have like some home-based connections as well. I really worry about a, a lot of kids who are completely isolated and, and really struggle within their own family dynamics, particularly based on like having different identities than those their parents can understand. And there's a lot of additional challenges that people are facing in this context that really concern me. And I, I think that schools really need to jump in as much as they can to help kids manage emotionally and socially, way more so than they've ever done in the past. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think uh, uh, continue, a conversation uh, that keeps coming back again and again is how do we establish back social community? Mm. Every, every school, is uh, every teacher is, who's concerned about uh, their students says, how do we establish community back? Uh, and, and because a good teacher realizes that that space that you create in your classroom, you know, is, it almost becomes like a sacred space. It should. And, and, and if you are able to do that online uh, through some means, then you've cracked it. Mm then you'll be able to get across to your kids, you know. So, so we really have to uh, find ways of doing that. And, and one of the things I, I've been telling teachers is, maybe you need to change your persona a little bit, you know, uh, and let them know that, you know, there are days that you are feeling lousy too, you know, you just don't feel like teaching today. So let's just chat in class today. And the, the student begins to realize that you're human too, you know, or you can share stories one day. Or you can take breaks one day and say, you know, I, I really messed up my, my meal last night. Or do you have something interesting I could share? I have no idea what I'm going to cook for dinner tonight. You know? And kids begin to realize that they are humans who come together to learn. Absolutely. It's, you it's you couldn't be more correct. This is the key to everything. If you want to be an effective teacher, the, absolutely 100% the key is rapport and relationships. 
You do that Absolutely. and everything else just happens. It's easy. Kids are brilliant. They don't really need your Absolutely. presumed uh, genius. What they need is connection and love and support. And then there's lots of like small things that we can do to actually facilitate that uh, more optimally than less. But yes, like know the students. It's so important. You have gone way, way farther than that, though, in, in the construction of the framework that you guys are positing that you call the EMC Square framework. And in it, you have four different components uh, that you see as utterly essential and as the, the key components for social and emotional learning. There's different like paradigms out there. I think this one's better. What are your four components? How did you come to them? And what would implementation of these look like? Okay. So, um, well, I'm, I'm to start with, I'm delighted that uh, you like the framework. And, love the uh, framework. I, I, I love that. And I think uh, we are all very inspired because we managed to, uh, to attach it to something that's precious to all of us, EMC Square. Okay. So that's the framework. And um, uh, I think we were very lucky that we were able to fit this into it. It was done by a colleague of mine, also at MGIT called Archana. And she came up with uh, fitting this really in. So the four components really stand for empathy, mindfulness, compassion, and critical inquiry. Mm -hmm. okay. And um, let me try and break it down to why we chose these four components and uh, what, what backs the science behind it. Okay. So a um, couple of things that we've been very cognizant of when we came up with this framework is, uh, we wanted students to have agency. Mm. Um, we wanted to build on this very important finding from the neurosciences, from social cognition, which is namely that of theory of mind, okay? And, and how empathy is at the root of it. Okay? So the fact that um, when you eat an ice cream um, and I'm watching you eat an ice cream, gets me to salivate, mm. want to eat that ice cream. Uh, the same network also gets activated when a child is running across the classroom and hits a table and falls. And the teacher goes, ah, or a friend goes, ah, you know. It's not that they've been hurt, but they know that the child has been hurt. And because they have empathy, they can resonate with what that hurt is. So I can simulate that feeling. But coming from UNESCO, where uh, the world is our stage and we seek to build global citizenship, a very conscious component in building empathy is to have empathy not just for the people whom you love and know, but the need to have empathy for mankind yes. beyond people who look and behave like you, because we first need to put them as human beings. Yes. Okay. So the notion of empathy was very central and needs to be cultivated. What's very encouraging is we are born with empathy. We just need to nurture it. So if you look at very young kids, they have natural empathy for each other and for all, you know, whether it's animals, it's uh, plants, Children have no fear, okay? It's adults who teach them fear. Mm. And so we want to nurture this concept of empathy that exists in human beings naturally by providing the right atmosphere and the right behaviors around them. 
The second is mindfulness. So again, um, there is a very specific network for mindfulness in the brain. And there is, uh, there is very exciting work to show that a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Mm. It's a very, very powerful paper uh, published by Klingsworth, uh, I forget the year. And they did a very interesting study and they just picked up the phone and spoke to dozens of students across the United States and just un asked them one question about what are you doing? Uh, what are you thinking of? And there were three questions and what emerged from that study was that most people are not focused on what they are doing, but the mind is wandering. And they found that people whose minds were wandering were unhappy. The third is compassion. Okay. And that is, again, going back to the neurosciences that show that whenever we perform acts which help another, they activate circuits of reward in yourself. Okay. And that's a very powerful feeling. Sure is. If you want to feel good, and you feel good when you're doing good for someone else, that's like a double whammy, right? You, you're, 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 you're making somebody else's life better, but in the process, feeling good about it too. Okay. So that's the compassion that comes out of it. And, and uh, if, if you think about it, uh, it's, it's the same kind of happy feeling that you get when you eat a good meal or you drink a, a good glass of wine. The feel good feeling that comes in that this is life, this feels good. Okay. With compassion, it gets even more heady at times. Okay. And finally, critical inquiry. Because it's important for us to ensure that every decision we take, uh, every comment that we respond to is rooted in good logical thought and good rational thinking too. Okay. Somehow this has to connect back to the evidence that you have seen again and again reproduced. Okay. So there we want people to be very cognizant, to, be, to not let go of that intellectual rationality, which is, which is very conscious of all the behaviors that we do, but to lace it enough with, uh, with emotion and compassion so that you are able to do the right action. So very, uh, a very conscious attempt that was made here was, if you become too empathetic, you can lead to empathic distress. Mm. Because if you can get too caught in with the problem of the person, again, the need for critical inquiry and some amount of objective compassion allows you to say, if I want to really better this person's life, if I get distressed too, that's not going to help somebody else's life. Okay, so so that that rootedness in reality is important. To be aware that I need to take compassionate action now, so that the situation improves, and and sort of putting this whole thing together is the idea of human flourishing. Yeah, and so the notion is that so far we have probably thought a lot about human well-being okay so being well okay being well uh, physically uh, economically emotionally but if we want to flourish we will flourish only when those around us flourish 
because as human beings, we are social animals. Okay? And even though you might think that um, I'm doing much better than my neighbor, the amount of happiness that you will get when your neighbor and you both flourish together is something that you have to experience to recognize. Okay. So that's where the, the concept of uh, human flourishing is at the center. And uh, as of now, we believe that if we build on these competencies in children, so you look out not only for yourself, but the other two. Okay. That's crucial to the social and emotional learning framework. And of course, we've been, uh, we've, we've looked a lot at the neuroscience literature. And now we know that each of these has a distinct circuit which operates. Mm -hmm. This circuit also, each of these circuits links the limbic cortex, the emotional brain, and the thinking brain. So as you engage in these practices, you are building anatomical connections between the thinking brain and the emotional brain. And thereby we think we actually build more whole brain learning rather than just specific learning. Yeah. So I don't know whether that answers your question. It does. It answers my question very well. I think that's absolutely fascinating. I'm really interested in particular in the relationship, I, I mean, at least currently, between stress and learning. Like what is the optimal mm -hmm. level of stress? Because we no stress isn't good. Way too much stress yeah. is terrible. There is an optimal level. But how we access that, I think, has a lot to do, how well we access that has a lot to do with our our regulation capacities, the relationship between our emotional and our uh, prefrontal cortexes and our ability to be able to recognize when we're in like highly distressed or emotional states or predict that those might happen and achieve calm. What is the benefit Absolutely. of calmness when it comes to learning? Um, and what is the benefit of stress when it comes to learning? So um, I think one of the things we've realized is that as human beings, we experience different emotional states, okay? And it's important to be able to first recognize those different emotional states. And secondly, also to be able to decide when you need to manage them, mm. okay? And that's why emotional literacy and emotional regulation has become such an important yet a difficult subject to deal with. It, it doesn't come easily. I think we all learn from it every single day. Okay, I, I don't think you ever stop learning about how, how well you can manage uh, your emotions and your actions. Mm, for sure. So the best thing about being calm from a, from a neuroscience uh, point of view is you can, you can experience um, a feel of, um, I would say, uh, in, in many ways, in some kind of a, a resting state or uh, a blissful state, uh, I don't think I have ever been completely calm. Really? I'm, I'm, still, I'm still looking for it. Mm. But I find the, your other question in some ways, Maury, a little easier to answer is, uh, the, the stress which leads to excitement, I think, not only gets um, my, my brain into an active state, but also gets 
the right kind of neurotransmitters going, which are so important for learning. So it's not, I mean, the whole process of learning involves, involves so much, you know. It involves an interaction of engagement, of motivation, of reward. Uh, all of this comes together in order to be able to learn. Okay. So if, if I'm completely calm, I'm first receptive to information, which is what you want to be when information is coming in. You're not distracted, you're focused. And so you're completely focused on the information coming in. So I would say that's probably the best mindful state you can be in learning. So it really helps with attention. But once that's is that right? Say that again. So it really helps with attention. Is that what you're saying? It really helps. It really directs your attention. Mm -hmm. When you're calm, you can direct your attention on what's being presented to you. Once that information, the sensory information comes in and you process it, it can either put you in an excited state or it can uh, make you indifferent or it could make send you into boredom that, oh, this doesn't matter to me. Let's hope it starts, every new information starts up with a state of excitedness. What's important is to continue to keep the brain excited. Okay? And this is really one place where uh, a teacher in a class can use um, either a story or sometimes even something as simple as a modulated voice to make sure that the brain stays engaged. Mm -hmm. okay? So if I talk like this, it gets very boring, very zone. Sure. But if I talk like that, then the brain is more excited because we know that's how the brain functions. It responds to changes in sensory information. So clearly the, the, the mindful state helps draw attention to receive the information. After that, to keep the brain engaged in learning is really the challenge of uh, the teacher and the pedagogy being employed uh, during that process. Okay. So what level of stress you take it to is there up to the teacher. If you make it so complicated that the brain gets to a state where it can't understand anything, it will switch off and go into a state of calm where it's reaching out to something else or it goes to a stage of distraction. Mm. Okay. It can lead to either of the two. Okay. Very often to a stage of distraction where the mind begins to wander and then you don't know. If it wanders into a pleasant state, then the student might feel good, but it can also just lead to complete distraction and a bit of a waste, I would say, sure. of, of good, powerful time in the classroom. But yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, stress and the right amount of it is certainly at times necessary to get uh, the adrenaline going. Mm. Okay. It gives you that push a little bit to do something further. And if learning can begin to drive it, if after that, the learning takes over, which is where we say, if learning becomes, or in motivation is intrinsic, if you learn for the sake of learning and not to be able to get marks or to please somebody, but just the notion that, oh, this is how, this is why the sky is blue, you know? It's such a fascinating idea. I just want to know more about it. If, if that can drive you, then, then learning is going to be 
a piece of cake. It's it, it really you're is. You're going to want to learn more. It's it'll it, it'll just happen it, magically. It's absolutely yeah. incredible. There, absolutely. there isn't all that much that we need to do. The problem is that like our structures in in schools are incredibly coercive and induce tremendous stress, particularly around assessment. Yes. And the evidence for that, I think, is non-existent. And there's a tremendous amount of evidence for why we shouldn't be stressing kids out overly much and allowing them to figure out who they are and direct their own learning. Because once you do that, kids develop as they were meant to develop, you know? Uh, Abraham Maslow has a really interesting quote from a very long time ago, which was something to the effect of, and I'm going to destroy it, but you don't, what you want to do is make a rose a good rose. You don't want to turn a rose into like a tree or a lily or something else. You respect the individuality of the learner and you try to figure out what their needs are and you help them grow in their own way. But if we're trying, if we've decided as school systems that there's only one way or there's six ways, whatever, that necessarily doesn't respect individuality and therefore the Very brain. And, and, and we now know, of course, that every brain is wired differently mm. okay and and our assumption when we get into the classroom is i have 30 copies of the same brain and you couldn't be more wrong you know you have 30 different brains okay it's not 30 30 copies of the one brain they're all 30 different brains and so you can imagine um, how difficult it is going to be for a teacher but that's also the reason why a teacher needs to adopt multiple approaches. Mm. But I also think that gives great power to a teacher because, and this is something I tell teachers every time I see them. I was like, if anybody is playing God on this earth, it's teachers, you know? You are wiring the brains of our children. If you wire them right, you're going to have a bunch of happy people going out into the world. And, 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 and so if you, if you demonstrate the right behaviors, children are going to pick that up. Children spend so many hours of the day with teachers after, they, after home at school. And, and the periods when they are at school are the times when the brain is at its best in development. The neuroplasticity of the brain is at its maximal. And so at our younger ages, and I really think this is, uh, this is going to. This is a plea that we are putting out to many more people. Is we need to put in our best efforts at the youngest stages, because the brain is so plastic. You know, you can mold it into anything. It's like a sponge. So if we teach our kids the right things between those ages of four and eight, when um, the the line for development is it's it's almost linear. The kids are growing so fast that. They will just, you will accept the foundations for the future. Mm. So what would it, what would your ideal or ideal imagined uh, classroom or learning environment look like if we were to integrate these four principles uh, of the EMC square framework? Um, so whether it's, whether it's online or it's uh, in person, I think what would be wonderful is if, um, we can position learning in the classroom from an inquiry approach, okay? So, so let's start asking questions about whatever we want to learn more about 
and encourage students to ask questions back. So we start by asking questions. We come together, we collaborate to find answers. We pause to reflect when we have learned something to see whether we have learned enough or do we need to learn more? Is all of this making sense? So this whole notion of pausing to do a reflection or a mindfulness exercise. So you're connecting back with your body that is my brain, is my stomach all feeling good about what I'm learning? So our, our bodies speak to us when, when we are learning, but we don't pay too much attention to them. So if we can regularly pause and connect back with our body, sometimes they tell us, you know, we are hungry. You know? Sometimes they tell us this is not seeming right. And you realize that's because you've not understood the concept too well. And uh, uh, some of it is getting reflected in the muscles of your stomach too. Okay? So you need to probably hear that and probably come back and ask the teacher that, can you go back over that concept again? Or here's my question with it. And then, along the classroom also begin to see that uh, maybe somebody else asked a question and uh, you realize that's a different perspective from what you were bringing in. And you realize, oh, that's a different way of thinking about the question too. So how you open up your brain also to recognize that different people think in different ways to recognize that that point of view can be different from your point of view. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that that person cannot be your friend because he or she thinks differently from you. So if I'm able to do this and advance my learning in the classroom, okay, I think the classroom would be a fun place. And if there were places where I did not understand, can I uh, pause and can I be provided an opportunity where in a small group, we can even discuss this issue, okay? So people will share their learnings and say, this is how I think about it. And this is how I thought about it. And that collective learning is something that I also learned from. So learning from your peer is something which needs to come into the classroom a little more too, because it not only establishes the social connect, the social connect and coming together also brings about an emotional good feeling of learning together. Okay. So, so if we are able to have uh, in a 30 minute uh, classroom session, two five minute sessions where kids can come into groups to discuss some things, I think the classroom, it might become a little noisy, but it'll become a much happier classroom. And this, this could probably be something we can use from kindergarten right up to higher secondary school. Absolutely. Um, what you're describing to me sounds like just very good pedagogy. Um, it also sounds like you're describing it as like as more innovative than I think it might be in, in certain contexts. I'm really curious about the Indian context of schools. And, and what what is that? I've never been to India. I still haven't been to India. I was supposed to go this year and didn't happen because of COVID. But what is an Indian school look like? I've heard that they have schools of like 5,000 kids and stuff like that in some cases. Well, I imagine um, there's massive variance. Well, absolutely. So you, so you hit the nail on the head there. It's, there's massive variance. Uh, you, can, you, have, you can have a classroom with as many as 100 kids 
you can have a classroom with as few as 12 kids in a classroom. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, a lot of it is really determined by uh, socioeconomic uh, strata, you know. But um, there's also been, there's also a lot of rote learning in places and schools. But there are also schools where you have classes out in the open, you know, um, or you, you learn a lot with nature. So the variance in schools in India is massive, absolutely. But one thing which an Indian classroom certainly teaches you wherever you go to school is how much diversity that exists in the world. Okay. So in the same classroom, you will have uh, children speaking as many as 15 different languages at home. Uh, they bring in different kinds of food they bring in different kinds of customs, okay, in terms of cultural customs. And so awesome. diversity as a way of life is something that is almost a part of the Indian DNA. Tell me about the power dynamics in, in the class. There has to be. There's always power dynamics in class based on identity, right? How did those play out differentially in, in, in according to maybe ethnicity, religion, and gender uh, in, in Indian classrooms? Very, very difficult question. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how well I'll be able to answer it, but I'll try. Maybe a hypothesis. Um, so again, um, it's changed a lot over the years, but from what I hear and read in, in, in many of the rural areas, um, the caste system still prevails. Okay. Mm -hmm. And... Um, there will be differences in the classroom because um, you come in from different caste structures. Re religion is discussed maybe at specific times, but I wouldn't say makes such a presence in a, in a classroom. But the power dynamics between in the amongst uh, the boys and the girls is very strong. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and something that... Um, that unnerves a lot of the boys is that the girls do very well in school. Yep, sure do. <laughs> and, and so um, that in some ways almost enhances the power dynamics because it makes uh, uh, the boys even uh, more insecure. Uh... You know, that uh, not only has uh, uh, the young girl probably you know, worked at home before coming to school, She's, she's just doing so much better at school. Mm -hmm. and, and that's often given rise to uh, this, this, this very uh, difficult notion of how there is a hunger to learn because you're deprived of it, you know? And how deprivation can at times uh, probably act as this one of the strongest stimuli to get people and children to get something, you know? And it, it's amazing how many uh, people who can't even, um, who might not be able to afford it will put together all their savings to be able to send their child to an English medium school. Because somehow the power of being able to speak in the English language is going to open up opportunity for you. Okay. And, and something which I discovered uh, last week was from a colleague of mine, and they're doing virtual dialogues with uh, students across different parts of the world, as well as parents, 
about what they expect from education and what they think education is for. And it's interesting, but in, in, in Asia, there is still so much gratitude if you are able to get education. Whereas um, in the West, in many of the privileged countries, uh, education is taken as a right. An and entitlement, really, which, entitlement. which is good. Exactly. It's very good. But I, I wonder when this attitude will change mm. in, uh, in India and in, many, in other uh, Asian countries too, mm. who are just grateful that their kids are able to go to school. I mean, there are enough first-generation learners in India. Kids who are going, somebody in the family is going to the school for the first time. Wow, I've never heard that concept before, first-generation learner. Well, they're not first-generation learner. They're first-generation schooler or something like that. But like, wow. Yeah. And so there's nobody at home to help you with homework mm. because nobody at, at home knows how to read. And it's changing, but I'm at, these, are, these are situations that need to be kept in mind. Uh, and yet this, this child uh, might be an extremely sharing child because the home he or she comes from is a loving, caring, sharing home, which essentially says social, emotional learning and literacy are no longer linked. These are human traits. Mm. Okay, and they should never be confused to say that just because you have you come from a higher socioeconomic class or you're highly educated that you will have high social emotional skills by no means. Sometimes uh, the poorest in terms of socioeconomic strata might be uh, the most uh, well equipped and the most skilled social and emotional beings that we've seen. Absolutely. I think almost anybody who travels around much of the world sees this again and again and again and again. You can go into some really quite poor communities and see some absolutely joyous connected people um, so long as they have certain basic needs met. Not saying that we should allow those situations to persist, but I do see them as learning opportunities for the rest of us. And by contrast, you see billionaires who are absolutely narcissistically maniacal and just their whole life is about ruining other people's lives. And those are sick people. They shouldn't be put up as role models, but our entire capitalist system does, and that's problematic. But getting back to what you guys are doing. So I'm so fascinated by the Indian context. And one of the, one of the things that you guys have seen as an opportunity is digital. And, and yes. so, yes, you've got kids, millions of kids all over the place, but there are increasing opportunities to connect online. So, and you guys yes. see that as a huge avenue for growth. Yes. Please tell me about all that stuff that you're doing as well. So, um, I think very early on, and this is where probably, um, as Ananta says, the director of MGIP, that uh, if in order to be able to scale what we want to do, digital is going to be the way to go. Okay. And so uh, right from the start, we have taken on this mandate of wanting to build uh, or find ways to embed social and emotional learning into classroom curricula using the digital medium. And another very conscious approach that we took was that taking a textbook and making a PDF file and showing it or putting it onto a PowerPoint does not make that digital learning. Okay? You have to do no. digital pedagogy. Okay? So you have to design pedagogy for the digital medium. And technology is really so powerful today that it can be done. I mean, Imagine uh, two students having a dialogue like you and I are talking, you know, 
how much they would learn from each other, you know, without having to travel. And that, that exchange in terms of dialogue can be so powerful. So, so we created um, a whole new framework, which we call Libring. It's the, the idea is to liberate the mind. That's a French word, which means liberate the uh, mind. Yeah. And the idea is to use evidence-based um, data to say that if your classroom pedagogy uses storytelling, uses um, reflection, uses dialogue, and uh, uses games, you can actually do teach anything you want to to kids online okay. and and there are so many resources available across the world these days which can be shared very easily and and people are very happy to share these resources i must say it's been uh, it's been very uh, gratifying to see how much people are creating to share across the world okay. yeah educators are really nice yes. <laughs> they're generally really compassionate, compassionate people. people and so We've created a learning platform called Framerspace. Okay. Framerspace, and it's um, it's free. It's online. It's a platform to build curricula, to disseminate curricula, to co-create curricula. So children, teachers, and students can even build lessons together. And uh, you can use um, you can put in a game. You can put in a video because the video tells the story very powerfully. You can use comic strips to be able to bring into the classroom to, to discuss maybe uh, a difficult idea by having two people having a conversation. So we've used all of these features to build classroom lessons. We call them modules. Okay? And the, the whole notion is that after, say, uh, children are about 12 or 13, we think they are now ready to be able to do some of this learning on their own. They learn actually more when they are talking more to their kids than by just learning by, by, by their, with their friends rather than just learning by themselves. So we are moving the conversation after the kids are about 12 or 13 a little more to the online medium where we want to use the teacher more to facilitate the discussion. Okay? But the mm -hmm. kids to start to learn on their own, the teacher to be, take on more of the role of the facilitator. And maybe at times come in to do something specific in the classroom, but to use this online medium to actually bring the best of what's available. Somebody else might be teaching a concept in calculus much better than you are. It's reach out to that professor and do that video in the classroom and then discuss issues. That's perfectly okay to be able to do that. Okay. And, and yep. then to, to be able to blend in by saying, okay, you know, we've done a lot of reading or, uh, exercises right now let's now now do this through a game so let's build uh, do an exercise in climate change by putting in parameters on how much oxygen how much carbon dioxide and and let's see what the outcome is going to be you know if we increase the number of cars here so now children suddenly become active citizens who are almost doing policy planning on what happens if these different parameters change and therefore, they become our agents for climate change. They're not just yes. being told, but because they've been part of the process, they can come back and say, Dad, you're not dropping me to school tomorrow. I am going to carpool, or the four of us are putting together and going to do this because we learned this yesterday. So if they start becoming our agents for change, I think the future is in good hands.
Couldn't agree more. You're absolutely correct about that. And it, it like, so I'm a social science teacher. Yeah. And it is absolutely amazing. The ideas kids will come up with if you just oh, yes. let them and you really create the conditions. They need a tremendous amount of background yes. knowledge in, in, in social sciences in particular. It needs to be interdisciplinary uh, for it to make any sense. And it needs to be absolutely connected to real world problems. But once you set up those conditions, kids will shine. They will absolutely understand for one, uh, but they'll problem solve solutions that adults just don't come up with because we're kind of like socialized into our roles through uh, our institutions and whatnot. So I love what you're doing, but I want to know more. So like when I look at this MGIEP website, it's amazing. Like it's like you're doing a hundred different things. Please tell me a bit about the, the mission of MGIEP and where did it come about and where are you going? So, um, we were established in 2012, and I think, but really, operations sort of took off in 2013-14. Um, once we had a permanent director, <clears throat> excuse me, who's the founder director, Ananta Durayappa. So we haven't been around that long, and NGIP is uh, UNESCO's first institute in the Asia Pacific region, and is focused on education for peace and sustainable development. So if you think about it, uh, and if you look at the neuroscience of it, we are probably at the first time in history that we know enough about learning and the brain to be able to decide what's the kind of future we want. First time in history. All all our times in history in the past, we have just responded to, to change because of what happened around us. It could have been war, it could have been attacks, but we've just responded to change. But because we know so much about learning the way the brain functions, the way collectives together, when when 20 brains or 100 brains come together, how they function, we are actually at a point in history where we are in a position to chart out what our future should be. And so if we choose the right competencies to cultivate in beings, we can actually think of a peaceful, sustainable planet. And that's what MGIP really wants to do, is how do we build a future where human flourishing prevails? And to put it very simply, what we feel is if we can integrate social emotional learning into education systems, a large part of that mission would have been achieved because we would have been forced to recognize that it's not just my success that is going to be necessary for a peaceful future, but also the flourishing of my neighbor. And therefore we will go together. So that recognition of the need for not just the self, but the other, I think that's something that we value very strongly. Okay. And, and that's what something we want to sort of reach, gradually build it out for the whole world so that other keeps building up and gradually includes the whole world. So we do this through multiple ways. We have uh, a lot of programs which are designed for school children. And uh, uh, there, there's, the whole thing is structured around global citizenship, where uh, for the younger age groups, we work with empowering the teachers with skills which they can take into the classroom 
for the middle schoolers, the 12 to 15 year olds is where we've created these digital modules where the kids begin to discuss these and see them on a larger setting and learn about these things from other children too, not just by themselves. And then for the even older kids, for the 15 to 18 year olds, we actually structure programs around games. It's called game-based learning. And so the idea is to use the narrative of, a, of powerful commercial games, but to use them as hooks to talk about more structured learning. And it's turning out to be an extremely mm -hmm. interesting exercise. I mean, imagine um, learning about migration by playing a game like Bury Me My Love, where a young girl uh, called Noor is fleeing from Syria to Europe. And you have to play, take on the role of her husband to make sure that she actually makes that journey across. So you have to get into the shoes of her husband to be able to help her navigate the game as she goes through. So you learn about migration, you learn about good decision-making, you learn about empathy, you learn about compassion, and you learn about migration and the reasons why people migrate. And now, taking off from here, you do four specific modules where you discuss migration in the context of birds, in the context of employment, in the context of, uh, of Noor that's happening, and, and how there are other things linked to migration that also emerge in cities, all of that. How can you be more compassionate to the other person whom you saw standing in the line when you were buying vegetables who looked different from you, but it's probably a migrant who has come here in search of uh, better opportunity. So your learning that you had in the classroom begins to take on a social context. Too. And then we have a very active youth program, which is um, focuses a lot on two things. One is prevention of violent extremism. How do we work with youth to be able to, again, inculcate social and emotional skills, but also to be able to try and bring them into the discussion whereby we begin to help them address frustration that they encounter so that it's, it's directed not towards violence, but towards growth and towards engagement. And so one important uh, part of that whole uh, uh, notion towards uh, social emotional learning is uh, a program on the kindness campaign. So we are trying to collect 250,000 acts of kindness this idea. across the world. And, uh, and we, we hope to be soon talking about a day that can be devoted to kindness. Okay? So just like you have a day for nonviolence, if we can all decide to have a day of kindness. Can we make yeah. it not like September the 6th, but instead like Kindness Tuesdays? Let's sure. do it more regularly. Absolutely. But again, the, the notion being that every time you are kind to somebody, you're actually being kind to yourself yes. too, because you could feel good too, yes. right? Coming back to that same idea of the reward networks. So kindness is what's going to keep this world going and to somehow make that the center of this conversation and a lot of the purpose that we want to teach uh, our kids. And um, I long for a day when um, kids will come home from school and parents will not ask how many marks you got today, but how many acts of kindness you did today. And then we know that the world is going to be a happy place. It's beautiful. Yeah. 
where where is where do you see your work going? So I see. Um, so we've recently, long, uh, after the success of this uh, rethinking learning report and the number of people whom we found resonated with this idea, we have uh, now put together a collective for social emotional learning. So the idea is we bring like-minded people across the world together and say, what can we do so that social emotional learning gets into every education system? What can we do towards it? In terms of training, in terms of advocacy, in terms of data, how towards implementing it? Okay. So that's a big, it's like a movement that we want to now launch out there. And it's been very, very encouraging. The number of people who are just coming on board is just increasing every day. And we want to make sure that we are able to channelize it right so that it begins to see action. And what would be great is if by, by 2030, where uh, it's sort of the big year when uh, the education for all goals are achieved, if social emotional learning has made it into at least uh, I mean, it'd be wonderful if we had it in all countries, but at least 150 countries across the world. And that's recognized too, and is just as important as literacy and numeracy in the classroom. That's an important game changer for us. That's an excellent and frankly quite clear and I think achievable set of goals. Brilliant. And I'm more than happy to help. I think what you guys are doing is absolutely brilliant. And I'm just so glad I found you. Well, well, I'm delighted to have this conversation with you. And it's it's so heartening to find another partner. Mm. I, I really hope that we can collaborate somehow in some substance in the future because, yeah, you're obviously very, very cool and very good for the world. And I, I happen to work in contexts that are highly amenable to the kind of work that you're doing. And yeah, so, and, and it's all about experimentation and testing and trying to figure it out. And yes. I think it, ultimately what we need to do is help kids personalize their own social emotional growth so that they understand who they are as embodied beings, as emotional beings, as social beings, and, and know their own needs, how to meet them, and then how to best use their strengths to serve themselves and serve the world. And we do that and we have a wonderful planet and we can just have fun. You couldn't have said it better. Nandini, thank you so, 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 so much for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate your genius. I appreciate your hard work. And I appreciate the love that you're giving to the world of education. It's so important. Well, thank you, Gareth. It's been wonderful finding you. And I'm looking forward to a long, flourishing journey together. Thanks so much for listening. That was episode 11 of the Rural Teacher Podcast. I'm Gareth Manning. Massive respect and thanks to Nandini Chatterjee Singh of the UNESCO MGIEP, the Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development. As said in the intro, we did not quite do this topic justice. So read the report. It's called Rethinking Learning, a review of social and emotional learning for education systems. It's great. I give it and the MGIEP my wholehearted support. Peace and love. I'm Gareth and I'm grateful. Thanks for listening.